Hello and welcome to episode one of the GoatCast. This is your host, Dark Horn Goat. And today we're going to be talking about one of my biggest pet peeves online. And that's when people describe people on the left as, and I quote, fascist, Marxist, Leninist, communist, socialist, liberals. All of these, all of those different words, different political ideologies couldn't be more different from each other. And what we're going to do today is talk about why each one is different. We're going to define them, break them down a little bit. Um, now, a lot of this information I'm pulling from online sources such as uh, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, Wikipedia, and so forth. So forgive me if they're not 110% accurate, but they're going to be as close as what we need today to kind of break these down. Uh, we're going to start with fascism. Uh, fascism is a form of far-right authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, as well as strong regimentation of society and the economy, which came to prominence in early 20th century Europe. The first fascist movements emerged in Italy uh, during World War I before spreading to other European countries, Germany, so forth. Opposed to liberalism, Marxism, and anarchism, fascism is placed on the far right within the traditional right-left spectrum. Um, fascists believe that liberal democracy is obsolete and regard the complete mobilization of society under a, 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 excuse me, a totalitarian one-party state as necessary to prepare a nation for armed conflict, and to respond effectively to economic difficulties. Such a state is led by a strong leader, such as a dictator, and a martial government composed of the members of the governing fascist party to forge national unity and maintain a stable and orderly society. Fascism rejects assertions that violence is automatically negative in nature and views political violence, war, and imperialism as means that can achieve national rejuvenation. Fascists advocate for a mixed economy with the principal goal of achieving national economic self-sufficiency through protectionist and interventionist economic policies. So what this basically means is... Um, it's an ultranationalist totalitarian dictatorship, if you will, um, led by a certain class of people, a fascist party, um, that basically seeks, you know, authoritarianism, totalitarianism. Um, I've also read a definition where it's defined as a merging of, um, corporate and government interests into one. So basically um, the corporate class leading the political class, if you will. So that's fascism in a nutshell. Um, moving along, socialism. Socialism is a political, social, and economic philosophy encompassing a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership of the means of production and worker self-management of enterprises. It includes the political theories and movements associated with such systems. 
Social ownership can be public, collective, cooperative, or equal. While no single definition encapsulates many types of socialism, social ownership is the one common element. Socialist systems are divided into non-market and market forms. Non-market socialism substitutes factor markets and money with integrated economic planning and engineering or technical criteria based on calculation performed in kind, thereby producing a different economic mechanism that functions according to different economic laws and dynamics than those of capitalism. A non-market socialist system, almost a capitalist, a non-market socialist system eliminates the inefficiencies and crises traditionally associated with capital accumulation and the profit system in capitalism. The socialist calculation debate originated by the economic calculation problem concerns the feasibility and methods of resource allocation for a planned socialist system. By contrast, market socialism retains the use of monetary prices, factor markets, and in some cases, the profit motive with respect to the operation of socially owned enterprises and the allocation of capital goods between them. Profits generated by these firms would be controlled directly by the workforce of each firm or accrue to society at large in the form of a social dividend. So to break that down, um, to break down the two systems, the non-market socialist system um, basically eliminates capitalism altogether, uh, whereas a market uh, system retains money um, and capitalism in a sense, but instead of the profits going to the wealthy elite, uh, heads of corporations, shareholders, things like that, it would go to the working class, the people on the whole, um, in an equal fashion. Socialist politics have been both internationalist and nationalist in orientation. Origin, or, bleh, pardon me, not the greatest speaker. Organized through political parties and opposed to party politics, at times overlapping with trade unions and at other times independent and critical of them, and present in both industrialized and developed nations, or developing nations, excuse me. So basically... Socialism is a whole range of different ideologies. Social democracy originated within the socialist movement, supporting economic and social interventions to promote social justice. While retaining socialism as a long-term goal, since the post-war period, it has come to embrace a Keynesian mixed economy within a predominantly developed capitalist market economy and liberal democratic polity that expands state intervention to include income redistribution, regulation, and a welfare state. Economic democracy proposes a sort of market socialism with more democratic control of companies, currencies, investments, and natural resources. So pretty much... Um, Again, it can be very divergent as far as how you define socialism 
in a pure state. Um, but post-war, it's more become kind of a liberal democratic system, um, albeit with um, income redistribution, regulation, and a welfare state. Um, you know, more democratic control of companies, um, better control of natural resources, things like that. The socialist political movement includes a set of political philosophies that originated in the revolutionary movements of the mid to late 18th century and out of concern for the social problems that were associated with capitalism. By the late 19th century, after the work of Karl Marx and his collaborator Friedrich Engels, socialism had come to signify opposition to capitalism and advocacy for a post-capitalist system based on some form of social ownership of the means of production. By the 1920s, communism and social democracy had become the two dominant political tendencies within the international socialist movement, with socialism itself becoming the most influential secular movement of the 20th century. Socialist parties and ideas remain a political force, with varying degrees of power and influence on all continents, heading national governments in many countries around the world. Today, many socialists have also adopted the causes of other social movements, such as environmentalism, feminism, and progressivism. So, again, it's a whole range of philosophies originated with Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Um you know, anti-capitalist, um, anti-elitist, um, you know, a very liberal progressive type movement. Um, while the emergence of the Soviet, let me start that again. While the emergence of the Soviet Union as the world's first nominally socialist state led to socialism's widespread association with the Soviet economic model, some economists and intellectuals argued that, in practice, the model functioned as a form of state capitalism or a non-planned administrative or command economy. Academics, political, political commentators, and other scholars tend to distinguish between authoritarian socialist and democratic socialist states, with the first representing the Soviet bloc and the latter representing Western bloc countries, which have been democratically governed by socialist parties, such as Britain, France, Sweden, and Western social democracies in general, among others. So there's definitely a distinction there. You have um, a totalitarian socialist state, such as the Soviet Union, and we're going to touch on that some more in a bit. And Western social democracies such as Great Britain, France, Sweden, um, and what you see um, kind of bubbling under the surface here in the United States with people like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, Bernie Sanders, and so forth, what they've been advocating for, which is a more Western European form of social democracy. Um, a much more progressive system than what you saw in the Soviet Union. Uh, moving along, communism. Communism.
communism is a philosophical, social, political, economic ideology and movement whose ultimate goal is the establishment of a communist society, namely a socioeconomic order structured upon the ideas of common ownership of the means of production in the absence of social classes, money, and the state. Now, there's an important distinction between um, communism and socialism right there, and that with socialism, pardon me, my phone's going psychotic, um, with socialism, you can still preserve a lot of the um, economic classism, whereas um, with communism, those classes are wiped out. There is no difference between um, the wealthy and the poor because there are no wealthy or poor. Um, communism includes a variety of schools of thought, which broadly include Marxism and anarcho-communism, as well as the political ideologies grouped around both, all of which share the analysis that the current order of society stems from capitalism, its economic system, and mode of production. That in this system, there are two major social classes. That conflict between these two classes is the root of all problems in society, and that this situation can only ultimately be resolved through a social revolution. The two classes are the proletariat, the working class, who make up the majority of the population within society and who must, must work to survive, and the bourgeois, the capitalist class, a small minority who derives profit from employing the working class through private ownership of the means of production. According to this analysis, revolution will put the working class in power and in turn establish social ownership of the means of production, which is the primary element in the transformation of society toward communism. Along with social democracy, communism became the dominant political tendency within the international socialist movement by the 1920s. While the emergence of the Soviet Union as the world's first nominally communist state led to communism's widespread association with the Soviet economic model and Marxism-Leninism, some economists and intellectuals argued that in practice, the model functioned as a form of state capitalism or a non-planned administrative or command economy. Again, we're comparing the Soviet Union here because the Soviet Union did start as a communist society um, as opposed to a purely socialist society. Um, while they're both similar, there are distinct differences in that communism defines two separate classes within in the society and calls for the working class to rise up against the capitalist class, whereas socialism... Um, doesn't define those classes quite so starkly and still allows for a certain amount of capitalism. Um, moving along, Stalinism. Um, this is one that I see thrown around a lot, um, is Stalinism. Now, Stalinism is the means of governing and related policies implemented in the Soviet Union from 1927 to 53 by Joseph Stalin, hence the name, including rapid industrialization, the theory of socialism in one country, totalitarianism, 
collectivization of agriculture, a cult of personality, and subordination of the interests of foreign communist parties to those of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, deemed by Stalinism to be the leading vanguard party of communist revolution at the time. So basically, um, Stalinism was a very centralized, very authoritarian version of uh, socialism and very much um, a very brutal form of government formed around one figure, Joseph Stalin in this case, uh, who formed a cult of personality around himself um, and insisted upon the uh, subjugation of all of those other countries that define themselves as socialist to the Soviet Union, uh, subordination, ex excuse me. Um, so countries like Cuba, Venezuela, China, North Korea, ultimately in Stalin's viewpoint, they should all have to answer directly to him. Um, Stalinism promoted the escalation of class conflict, employing state violence to forcibly purge society of the bourgeois, whom Stalinist doctrine regarded as threats to the pursuit of the communist revolution. This policy resulted in substantial political violence and persecution of such people. However, enemies not only included the bourgeois, but also those of the working class who demonstrated counter-revolutionary sympathies. In other words, if you didn't agree with what Stalin was doing, you are automatically an enemy of the state. Officially designated, or excuse me, officially designed to accelerate development towards communism, the need for Stalinist industrialization was emphasized because the Soviet Union had previously fallen behind economically compared to Western countries, and that socialist society needed industry to face the challenges posed by internal and external en enemies of communism. As such, rapid industrialization was accompanied by mass collectivization of agriculture and by rapid urbanization, the latter of which converted many small villages into industrial cities. To accelerate the development of industrialization, Stalin imported materials, ideas, expertise, and workers from Western Europe and the United States, pragmatically setting up joint venture contracts with major American private enterprises, such as the Ford Motor Company, which, under state supervision, assisted in developing the basis of the industry of the Soviet economy, from the late 1920s to the 1930s. After the American private enterprises had completed their tasks, Soviet state enterprises took over. Now here's something a lot of people don't realize. Back in the early part of the 20th century when communism took over in the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union was formed, a lot of American corporations helped set up their industrial infrastructure, a big one here being Ford Motor Company, as I just stated. Um, so in many ways, we were responsible ourselves for the rise of the Soviet Union as an economic power. 
But a lot of people don't realize that it kind of gets whitewashed in history a little bit. Um, in, in a sense, when you really look at that, Stalin had the best interest in mind, but being a paranoid idiot, he basically screwed it all up and instituted a totalitarian, a totalitarian government and brutalized his own people in the pursuit of creating this economic utopia, which um, unfortunately for the Soviet Union, never quite materialized. Uh, moving along here, anarchism. Um, this is one that a lot of people always throw at the left saying, oh, you're anarchists. And, and we're going to show here why um, that's not the case. Um, anarchism is a political philosophy and movement that rejects all involuntary coercive forms of hierarchy. It calls for the abolition of the state, which it holds to be undesirable, unnecessary, and harmful. It is usually described alongside libertarian Marxism as the libertarian wing of the socialist movement and as having a historical association with anti-capitalism and socialism. The history of anarchism goes back to prehistory, when some human when some humans lived in anarchistic societies long before the establishment of formal states, realms, or empires. With the rise of organized hierarchical no, excuse me, hierarchical bodies, skepticism toward authority also rose. But it was not until the 19th century that a self-conscious political movement emerged. During the latter half of the 19th and the first decades of the 20th century, the anarchist movement flourished in many parts of the world and had a significant role in workers' struggles for emancipation. Various anarchist schools of thought formed during this period. Anarchists have taken part in several revolutions, most notably in the Spanish Civil War, whose end marked the end of, cla of the classical era of anarchism. In the last decades of the 20th century and into the 21st century, the anarchist movement has been resurgent once more. Anarchism employs various tactics in order to meet its ideal ends. These can be broadly separated into revolutionary and evolutionary tactics. There is significant overlap between the two, which are merely descriptive. Revolutionary tactics aim to bring down authority and state and have taken a violent turn in the past. Evolutionary tactics aim to prefigure what an anarchist society would be like. Anarchist thought, criticism, and praxis have played a part in diverse areas of human society. Criticism of anarchism mainly focuses on claims of it being internally inconsistent, violent, and utopian. Um, in a nutshell, anarchism calls for the complete abolition of government on the whole. Um, tear it all down, burn it all down. Nobody, <laughs> nobody in their right mind really wants all of that. Um, anarchism can be good in the short term as a means to change a government or a society, but as a long-term form of government, it's simply not sustainable. Um, so, I mean, 
it it's good in one sense, but it's bad in another sense. And one could easily say that there's anarchists on both sides. You hear a lot from the right wingers that certain parts of government need to be destroyed. You hear from left wingers that certain parts of government need to be destroyed. And while both sides may be um, correct to a point in the long term, it's simply not going to be a sustainable way of doing things. Um, because in the end, there will be no leadership and it just, it's just not going to work well. Um, let's move along here to democracy. Um, this is a form of government that we purport to have in this country. Um, although when I'm done with all of this, you can kind of debate amongst yourself exactly what form of government we're sitting in. I know which way I lean, but I'm not going to editorialize here too much on that. Uh, democracy is a form of government in which the people have the authority to choose their governing legislation. Who people are and how authority is shared among them are core issues for democratic theory, development, and constitution. Some cornerstones of these issues are freedom of assembly and speech, inclusiveness and equality, membership, consent, voting, right to life, and minority rights. Generally, there are two types of democracy, direct and representative. In a, in a direct democracy, the people elect. Oh, excuse me, have to take a drink, one moment. And we're back. Let's start that again. Generally, there are two types of democracy, direct and representative. In a direct democracy, the people directly deliberate and decide on legislation. In a representative democracy, the people elect representatives to deliberate and decide on legislation, such as in parliamentary or presidential democracy. Liquid democracy combines elements of these two basic types. However, the noun democracy has, over time, been modified by more than 3,500 adjectives, which suggests it may have types that can elude and elide this duality. The most common day-to-day decision-making approach of democracies has been the majority rule, though other decision-making approaches like supermajority and consensus have been equally integral to democracies. They serve the crucial purpose of inclusiveness and broader legitimacy on sensitive issues, counterbalancing majoritarianism, and therefore mostly take precedence on a constitutional level. In the common variant of liberal democracy, the powers of the majority are exercised within the framework of a representative democracy, but the Constitution limits the majority and protects the minority, usually through the enjoyment by all of certain rights, for instance, freedom of speech or freedom of association. Besides these general types of democracy, there is, have been a wealth of further types. Republics, though often associated with democracy because of the shared principle rule by consent of the governed, are not necessarily democracies, as republicanism does not specify how the people are to rule. Democracy is a system... Mm, excuse me. 
Democracy is a system of processing conflicts in which outcomes depend on what participants do, but no single force controls what occurs and its outcomes. The uncertainty of outcomes is inherent in democracy. Democracy makes all forces struggle repeatedly to realize their interests and devolves power from groups of people to sets of rules. Western democracy, as distinct from what existed in pre-modern societies, is generally considered to have originated in city-states, such as classical Athens and the Roman Republic, where various schemes and degrees of enfranchisement of the free male population were observed before the form disappeared in the West at the beginning of late antiquity. The English word dates back to the 16th century from older Middle, Middle French and Middle Latin equivalents. According to American political scientist Larry Diamond, democracy consists of four key elements. A political system for choosing and replacing the government through free and fair elections, the active participation of the people as citizens in politics and civic life, protection of the human rights of all citizens, and a rule of law in which the laws and procedures apply equally to all citizens. Todd Landman, nevertheless, draws our attention to the fact that democracy and human rights are two different concepts, and there must be greater specificity in the conceptualization and operationalization of democracy and human rights. Now, this is kind of important here. Um, the four key elements of democracy, um, basically um, voting, free and fair elections, um, active participation of all citizens in politics and civic life, uh, protection of human rights of all citizens, and equal application of the rule of law. Um, that's something that arguably in our own democracy, and I hate to editorialize here because I want to cover this in another podcast, but that's something one could argue is not currently present within our own society. And that explains the rise of other forms of government, such as democratic socialism. Um, but again, these systems are not mutually exclusive necessarily. Um, let's see, let's continue here. The term appeared in the fifth century BC to denote the political systems then existing in Greek city-states, notably Athens, to mean rule of the people, in contrast to aristocracy. While theoretically, these definitions are in opposition, in practice, the distinction historically has been blurred. The political system of classical Athens, for example, gained democratic citizenship to free men and excluded slaves and women from political participation. Or participation, excuse me. Mouth's a little dry. In virtually... One moment, I'm going to take a drink. 
in virtually all democratic governments throughout ancient and modern history. Democratic citizenship consisted of an elite class until full enfranchisement was won for all adult citizens in modern democracies through the suffrage movements of the 19th and 20th centuries. So women's suffrage, um, activism by um, minorities such as African Americans to gain voting rights and, and gain their place in civil society instead of um, as you had prior, you know, just after the Civil War, you had um, the law where um, African Americans were only three fifths of a person um, through various suffrage movements. Those laws were stricken down. Women, um, African Americans, and so forth were all granted the right to vote and the right to participate in civic society. Um, democracy contrasts with forms of government where power is either held by an individual or, uh, excuse me, let me start that again. <clears throat> democracy contrasts with forms of government where power is either held by an individual as in an absolute monarchy or where power is held by a small number of individuals as in an oligarchy. Nevertheless, these oppositions inherited from Greek philosophy are now ambiguous because contemporary governments have mixed democratic, oligarchic, and monarchic elements. Karl Popper defined democracy in contrast to dictatorship or tyranny, thus focusing on opportunities for the people to control their leaders and oust them without the need for a revolution. That's what voting is intended to do, is for us to be able to change our government change our leaders without the need for bloodshed, conflict, um, an armed revolution, if you will. Um, in a sense, you could almost think of every national election as a small revolution, so to speak, um, because we are replacing our leadership, because we are... Um, the the a certain majority of people within the com within the country are um in a sense seizing power um but in practice it's not necessarily the case um kind of interesting how they how it's compared you know between um a democrat a democracy and oligarchy and a monarchy there um and how contemporary governments, you know, kind of mix all three. Uh, one could argue that, the, you know, honestly, the United States kind of, kind of is is a mix of some of these. But again, we're going to cover that in another podcast later on. Um, let's move along here. Aristocracy. Um, aristocracy is a form of government that places strength in the hands of a small privileged ruling class aristocrats. The term derives from a Greek term, aristocratia, meaning rule of the best. At the time of the world's, of the word's origins in ancient Greece, the Greeks conceived it as ruled by the best qualified citizens and often contrasted it favorably with monarchy, ruled by an individual. The term was first used by such ancient Greeks Mm, excuse me, 
Sorry about that. I had a sandwich before this. My apologies. The term was first used by such ancient Greeks as Aristotle and Plato, who used it to describe a system where only the best of the citizens chosen through a careful process of selection would become rulers. And hereditary rule would actually have been forbidden unless the ruler's children performed best and were better endowed with the attributes that make a person fit to rule compared with every other citizen in the polity. Hereditary rule in this understanding is more related to oligarchy, a corrupted form of aristocracy where there is rule by a few, but not by the best. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Xenophon, and the Spartans considered aristocracy the ideal form of rule by the few to be inherently better than the ideal form of rule by many, democracy. But they also considered the corrupted form of aristocracy, oligarchy, to be worse than the corrupted, corrupted form of democracy, mob rule, or anarchy. This belief was rooted in the assumption that the masses could only produce average policy, while the best of men could produce the best policy, if they were indeed the best of men. Later, Polybius, in his analysis of the Roman Constitution, used the concept of aristocracy to, to describe his conception of a republic as a mixed form of government, along with democracy and monarchy in their conception from them. As a system of checks and balances, where each element checks the excesses of the other. In practice, aristocracy often leads to hereditary government, after which the hereditary monarch appoints officers as they see fit. In modern times, aristocracy was usually seen as rule by a privileged group, the, arist the aristocratic class, and has since been contrasted with democracy. Now, honestly, by these definitions, one could conclude that the United States is, in fact, a form of aristocracy. You have a certain class of people, especially nowadays, you have a certain class of people, the billionaires, the politicians, and the, um, the CEOs, you know, the millionaires, who tend to influence policy and who make policy and control the political system, while everybody else who doesn't fit into that 1% of people are kind of left out in the cold. Um, and, and you do see that play out in a lot of cases through um, lobbyists, um, through, you know, certain people who take large donations from corporations and from legislation like Citizens United, which um, made it completely legal for corporations to donate large sums of money um, to political candidates in order to influence policy. It basically declared corporations as citizens, which, let's face it, they're not. You know, corporations are not people. They don't live. They don't breathe. They are, um, they're, they're, structural, structurally organizations. Um, 
But one could make the argument that our current government is a form of aristocracy. One topic we haven't covered here is Marxism. And that's because in all actuality, Marxism is not actually a form of government. It is, um, it, I, I have it written down here, but it, it's not a government. It's, it's a theory in all actuality. Um, Marxism is a method of socioeconomic analysis that uses a materialist interpretation of historical development, better known as historical materialism to understand class relations and social conflict, as well as a dialect, dialectical perspective to view social transformation. It originates from the works of 19th century German philosophers Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. As Marxism has developed over time into various branches and schools of thought, there is currently no single definitive Marxist theory. Some Marxist schools of thought place greater emphasis on certain aspects of classical Marxism while rejecting or modifying other aspects. Some schools have sought to combine Marxian component concepts and non-Marxian concepts, which has then led to contradictory conclusions. It has been argued that there is a movement toward the recognition of historical and dialectical marked mark or er, to, excuse me, dialectical materialism as the fundamental conceptions of all Marxist schools of thought. This view is refuted by some post-Marxists such as Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe, who claim that history is not only determined by the mode of production, but also by consciousness and will. Marxism has added a profound impact on global academia, having influenced many fields, including anthropology, archaeology, art theory, criminology, cultural studies, economics, education, ethics, film theory, geography, historiography, so on and so forth, even sociology, theater, science studies, psychology, political science especially, though, and, of course, philosophy. Um, in a nutshell, Marxism is not a form of government. Marxism is a theory of, um, it's basically a political and class and social theory, um, that within it, it can define many, many things such as communism, socialism, and so forth. Uh, it's a way of analyzing all of these different things. Um, but it is not a form of government. If you call somebody a Marxist, you're basically in a nutshell calling them a political scientist. You're not calling them anything that's necessarily derogatory. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's nothing that, you know, it, it, it's a term spouted off by those who honestly have no idea what they're talking about. If somebody calls you a Marxist, they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know shit about what they're talking about. Um, so at any rate, these are the various forms of government and the contrasts 
and the contrast and differences between them um, and the similarities. Um, now, take all of this for what it's worth, but if you really look at, at these different things, you can kind of see where they converge, where they diverge. And using that, you can kind of come to a conclusion as to what system of government we live in. Um, in future podcasts, we're going to, you know, dive into this a little more and how it relates to the United States in particular and what form of government we are currently living in. Um, that's going to more or less wrap it up. I want to thank everybody who made it to the end of this. Sorry if it was boring as shit. Uh, I know this was a lot of wonky political stuff, but I hope it gave you and all the listeners a better understanding of what of what these different terms mean and what different styles of governments these are. So if again, if somebody calls you a Marxist socialist communist or an a uh, socialist anarchist, okay? They have no clue whatsoever what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Goatcast. Um Stay tuned in the future for further episodes. Uh, Everyone, have a great day, great night, great morning, great weekend, great afternoon. Take care now. Peace.